Well, today we start a brand new series where we're going to take a journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I've titled the series, Return of the King. Return of the King. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to pick up there. And I've titled uh, the sermon today, A Life Worth Imitating. A Life Worth Imitating. I'm going to do it a little different today. I'm not going to read through the entire passage. We're going to deal with this section by section as we go along. But before I do that, I just want to give you a quick overview of the book, um, just to give you some context for what we're going to be teaching over the next few weeks. The author of the book is believed by most biblical scholars to be the Apostle Paul. And most scholars believe that the, the book was written somewhere between A.D. 49 and 51. The most prominent theme of the book is the second coming of Christ, hence the, re, the, uh, the series title, The Return of the King, The Second Coming of Christ. And it's such a prevalent idea or theme that it's mentioned in every single chapter in the letter in the book. The purpose and the background a little bit. This was written to the church in Thessalonica and the surrounding areas. It, like John, was a circular letter that, that was to be circulated in all the, the area, across the area uh, in Thessalonica where it was situated. Thessalonica is the proud capital, was a proud capital of Macedonia. And at the time the letter was written, there was probably somewhere around 100,000 people uh, in that city. Its natural location acted somewhat as a harbor, and it was placed uh, right on, almost right in the middle of the east-west Ignatian Way. So it's a great place for commerce, and, and uh, it was a bustling place as a political center and a hotbed for, for vile information and communication. It was a bustling city. The city was made up primarily of, of Gentiles, but there, were also, there was also quite a, con, a, constituent, a constituency excuse me, of, uh, of Jews there as well. And so that's what brought Paul and Silas and Timothy to Thessalonica. They had visited the, the church, and, or they had visited Thessalonians and, or Thessalonica. They had established uh, themselves there as they preached in the synagogues over like three weekends on the Sabbath. And many Gentiles came to faith in Jesus Christ, as well as many of, of the traditional Jews came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was for that reason that the Jewish leaders of the day became upset, enraged at what was going on, because many of of the traditional Jews had left their faith and had become followers of Jesus Christ. And so what happened was these, these religious leaders, they hired these people that I love the, the King James. They called them the, uh, the lewd persons of the baser sort. King James. Let me give you modern terminology. Thugs. They hire some thugs, you know, to, to put Paul and Silas and Timothy in their place, right? And so the church got a hold of this information. They, they heard that, uh, that these, these thugs were going to come and, and accost Paul and Silas and Timothy. So they snuck Paul and Silas out uh, in the middle of the night, and, and they landed in Berea, which is about 50 miles away from Thessalonica. 
So some time passes, probably several months, and, and Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to bring him a report of how the church there, this little small church, is going. So Timothy comes back to Paul, and he brings this, this glowing report about what's taking place in the church there. But then there was, there, were, there were some situations for concern. There were several members of the church that had lost um, family members, loved ones, and they were grieving. And so the question arose, what happens to followers of Christ when we die? Is that it? Is there no hope or no expectation? Is, is that it for us? And so in the midst of this grief, is the reason that Paul sits down with Silas and Timothy and they begin to write this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Now, at the time Paul was in Corinth, was during the time of his second missionary journey that he'd actually penned this letter. All right, so he's sitting in Corinth and he pins this letter to the church in Thessalonians, or Thessalonica. Now, this letter, this, this, this letter, the first chapter of this letter, this, the entire chapter is devoted to these three men taking a review of the beginning of the church, how it got started, and expressing their joy and their excitement about its church, the church's growth and development. Okay, so it's from that context that I want to pick up and begin in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Are you ready? And it reads, I'm reading from the ESV. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, several things jump out at me as I'm reading this opening, this greeting, this salutation. First of all, three men are sitting down and they're pinning it. You have the Apostle Paul. And he's not by himself. He's, he's surrounded with someone who is a peer in Savannah, whose name is really Silas. That's how we know him. He's Paul's missionary companion, Silas. And, and Paul has now with him, he has someone who he's discipling, and Timothy. And the three of them sit down, and they write this letter. And here's what they say. They say, listen, we, we thank God for you always. Man, we, when we sit down and we think about you, we're thankful for what God is doing in your life. Why? And here's why. He says, because your life has had unforgettable impact. And that's my first point. A life worth imitating is a life of unforgettable impact. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, he says, we remember who you are. Your life had impact on us in three ways. First, your work of faith. Next, your labor of love. And then your hope in Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to see. Their faith, their work that they were doing in the church was produced by their faith. 
It was produced by their faith. I love the way that James writes this in James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, but you show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. Then he goes on to say in verse 26 of that same chapter, he says, faith, as, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is also dead. And so here's the point. Paul was saying, I've, I've seen your faith in action. I've seen your faith at work. I have seen the works that you are doing being produced from your faith in Jesus Christ. I can tell that you've embraced the gospel. So, I got to tell you, as I was reviewing this passage and preparing, it dawned on me, you know, I am, it's hard for me to believe that someone has come to faith in Jesus Christ and they don't feel compelled to do kingdom work. We were talking about that today in baptism class. You know, the guys that were sitting in the baptism class and, and Carrie, they didn't know this, but, you know, the questions that came out was really preaching my sermon right there in the baptism class. It's hard for me to believe that someone says that they've come to faith in Jesus Christ and you don't see them being compelled to do something in the kingdom. I believe that when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that that faith compels us to good works. I believe that. It, you know, as a matter of fact, I think it's kind of like this. It's like a man who gets married. He tells his wife, baby, I love you. I'll do anything. And then every single morning, she has to go downstairs and wake him up. Hey, get up, man. Go find a job. Get out the house. You say you love me. Go to work. Support me. Right? And so within the, the framework of this, faith works the same way. As, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, something on the inside of us should be stirring that we want to at least, we feel compelled to, to at least tell someone about what God is doing in our lives. And more often than not, that, that, that compelling by the Holy Spirit is going to lead us to do something. You guys understand what I'm saying? Can you agree with that? So Paul says... Your work has been produced by your faith. And then he says, your labor was prompted by love. Listen, labor costs you something. True labor, not just menial labor, but true labor really costs something. When you give yourselves laboring in love, that, that, that term love there is agape love. It means unselfish, sacrificial living for the sake of others. What you do, you do for the sake of, of others with a pure motive in mind, and that's pure love to demonstrate the love of God. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, he says, your labor of love. I can't think about laboring in love without thinking about a woman in childbirth. How many fathers in here? Let me see your hands. Okay. Keep your hand up if you were in the labor room with your wife. You can't tell me that that's not a labor of love, can you? If you think, if you think that it's not a labor of love, some, you raise your hand and somebody next to him just slap him across the face. Wait a minute. 
Man, because childbirth, childbirth is really, it's like, it's like a labor of love. That's the kind of, 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 of labor that Paul is talking about. It's unselfish laboring towards demonstrating the agape love of God. I want our church family to be a church that's driven by Christ's love like that. I want our church family to be a church that's driven by the love of Jesus Christ for us, in us, and through us. Laboring towards life in Christ and experiencing his love with one another. And then expressing that love to those outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. Laboring to see spiritual children be birthed into the kingdom of God making disciples of Jesus Christ. I want us to be a church like that. The third point, Paul speaks up here. He says, their steadfastness, their endurance was inspired by hope. Let me tell you something. Biblical hope is more than a wish. It's more than than, than, than confidence in what's going on right now and, and wishing that it would change. Biblical hope perseveres beyond what's taking place now, and it reaches into the future and pulls the future into the present. Biblical hope is is expressed through the way that we live our lives with anticipation, knowing that our hope rests in the power of the resurrected Savior and the return of the King, and we live our lives with that kind of expectation. That's biblical hope. Hoping and believing in the things that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, but we know it's real. Paul writes for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, he says, he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. He says, it's the evidence of things not seen. Faith is our ability to pull that thing that's in the future into the present. It leads to biblical hope. And we have a high hope and a great expectation. So here's the key to what Paul is writing here. He says faith, hope, and love, all within the context of what he's writing here to the church in Thessalonica. God, our Father, is the source of these three eternal qualities. They all come from him. And and what Paul is saying is Each one of these qualities are clearly connected to relationship, transforming, life-transforming relationship that can only be experienced within the context of life in Christ. Hmm. A life worth imitating. So first, a life worth imitating, according to Scripture here, what Paul is trying to get us to see is a life where, where we are Thankful for those who, who, who have had an unforgettable impact on our lives. And then we're begging God continuously and daily to help us be persons of unforgettable impact as well. That's the first point. The second is this. Life worth imitating is the result of the power of the gospel. Look what Paul says in verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because of the, our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That word conviction there is assurance. 
He says, so you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Listen, here's what he's saying. He said, you have had the opportunity to watch our lives over time. And you've seen us not only, not only talk the talk, but you've seen us walk the talk. And then he says, because at verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. To all the believers. Everyone says, say all. To all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And here's what that means for us today. Every one of us is looking for an example to follow, aren't we? Every one of us are. And there's a good chance that there's someone that's looking at you right now hoping that you're their example to follow. People are looking for someone they can trust, someone they can pattern their lives after, someone they can imitate. And you never know who's watching you. You don't. I, I recall before I came to Change Point, I was in another church, and, you know, there came a time during the service, like we normally do, where the pastor says, well, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to spend an extended time today greeting people. The church, just like this one, was growing. He's like, there are people that don't know each other, so why don't you guys just spend some time? We'll take like three, four minutes, five minutes to just, to just get to know one another. And I was sitting across the church from this guy that I've been watching for a while. And I never really embraced him because he always sat on the other side of the church. And so I looked at him, I made eye contact with him, and he made eye contact with me, and we kind of navigated through the people, and we got to each other, and I hugged him, I embraced him. I said, Reg, I said, man, bro, bro, let me tell you something, man. I said, I've been watching your life. You inspire me. You're a good man. I've been watching your life, and I love the way that you treat your wife and you take care of her. her wife, his wife at that point was, was going through cancer and, th and chemotherapy for cancer. I said, I love the way that, that, that in spite of your daughter hitting that patch of waywardness, how you're continuing to love her with the love of Christ. I, I just, I love that. I love the way that, the, that you, you can articulate scripture and the word of God is deep, resident in you. I, I just love that about you, man. He said, hey, Greg, hold on, bro. I'll tell you something. He says, what you're seeing is reflection of yourself. He says, because for three years I have been watching how you treat your wife. I've been watching how you handle scripture. I've been watching you navigate through tough times with your children. And what you are seeing from me is me mirroring the light that I see in you. You could have mopped me up off the floor. Because here's the point. I had no idea of knowing this man was watching me. None. You never know who's watching you. And Paul is telling us here, listen, man, we need to live a life worth imitating. Why? Because the church, family, the church is most effective when it follows the, the imitation model given to us by the Bible. The model where you find someone that's an example setter and you look at Christ in them and you model that. That's what Paul is writing here. He says, you, he says, we know you are our brothers. Why? Because we know that you've embraced the gospel. How do we know that? Because you began imitating us. And because, because you began imitating us, the same persecution that came to me is going to come to you. 
It's going to happen because the people that are persecuting us, they see the same spirit of God working in you that's working in us. And so you also will become a target of their persecution. I know this to be true. There are some of you in here right now that have converted from Catholicism. There are some of you in here right now that have converted from Mormonism or from Islam. And your families have been giving you hell. Your friends can't understand what's taking place on the inside of you. They think you've lost your mind, but you haven't. Here's what's happened. You've been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been changed, and it's, and it's affecting your immediate spheres of influence. It's like a virus, man, is starting to spread. And it gets better. Verse 8. Paul says, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Everybody say everywhere. Your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception. In other words, that what they had received that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let me tell you something. When the gospel of Jesus Christ finds you, it will change your life. You can, you, there is no way that you can convince me to believe that when the life changing power of Jesus Christ comes to you and you encounter it, that you can leave the same and not be compelled to change. I know I'm preaching right now, aren't I? But you can't convince me otherwise. Here's what Paul is saying. When that transformation takes place, your life will be like a blaring trumpet, man. It'll be a, a, a sound that, that is unmistakable, like a loud blast. That's what that means. And here's what that's saying. People around you will hear it. They'll start talking about it. The unsaved will hear about it. They'll notice your faith, and they'll see that you are now starting to live a totally different life than the people that are around you. And the reports will start to come. So that, report, that word report here that Paul uses is an active indicative word, which means that it's continual. It continues to happen. They keep on reporting. They just keep on getting good reports about what's going on. So listen, so I don't even need to ask what's going on. The people, the unsaved are looking, and, 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 they're, and they're saying what's going on in you. I don't even have to say anything. They're telling me on their own volition that there's been a change in your life. I remember when my son first dedicated his life to Jesus again. He's like me. And I remember going to his, to his parent-teacher conference, and the teachers were like, what happened to Dante? Say, so he's an entirely different guy. His friends were saying the same thing. I know many of you that have embraced the saving grace of Jesus Christ and you've gone home to your families and your friends and, and they're commenting, hey, I don't know who that guy is, but he's different than the guy that I knew. And so the reports begin to flood, 
not just in your sphere of influence, but in your families and your friends, that something has taken place on the inside of you, a mistakeable, an unmistakable change in your life, a change that produces lasting change, that evolves daily as we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to help us to become more like Jesus every day, modeling a life of Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. And listen, modeling Christ-likeness is not only a personal call to every single one of us, it's also a corporate call to the entire church as a whole. The reputation of the gospel is at stake. See, our spiritual growth and development, if it's by itself individually, that's good if we grow that way. But when we grow that way, we can only experience pockets of growth. I think it's like, it's like when you see like a, a, a landscaped yard and it's all covered with grass, but the grass is brown. And you've got these pockets of green grass. That's what it's like when we grow individually. It's necessary, but how much, how much more powerful is it when the entire church is growing together? How much more powerful and how much more of a, of a reputation of, of life in Christ and the ability of Jesus to change our lives? How much more powerful of a statement does it make when the entire church is growing together? The reputation of the gospel family is at stake for, in terms of how we live our lives. And this letter is a reminder of the gospel's influence in this world and how we'll either be weakened or strengthened by how we live our lives. So here's the question. When the world looks at you, what do they see? What do they see? Do they see a life being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his power, what do they see? And we have to be careful. I was sharing with uh, the baptism class this morning. My wife and I had a long day. I think it was Wednesday, probably. I got to the office early, you know, and, um, and, and I hadn't eaten anything all day. So I was probably kind of a little edgy anyway. Then we had to go out and buy office furniture and stuff, you know. So before I knew it, it, had, it was 8 o'clock at night. And so we went to a local sandwich shop and grabbed us a sandwich. You know, and we was going to munch on it, but then, oops, we remembered we had to stop at one of the local hardware stores. So we did. And when I got there, we were looking for, for um, some, some stuff for the office. And there was this young man behind the counter that I don't know what was wrong with him. Really, I don't. But, man, that guy started getting on my nerves. I mean, he treated me as if I didn't exist, right? He was all rude and mean to me, and I just got to tell you, y'all, I really wanted to introduce him to the five-fold ministry. I really wanted to make sure that he got the right hand of fellowship that night. I did, man, I did, you know, and I, and I really wanted to, but listen, what kind of witness would that have been? You never know who's watching you. 
We know people watch the news. How would it look on 10 o'clock news tonight? Uh, a local pastor embroiled in a brawl, details at 10. There's parts of us, listen, there's parts of us that the Lord reveals to us that still need to be surrendered to him. All of the time, the gospel covers that. The gospel transforms our lives. Hmm. And we have to be careful how we live because people are watching us. So, finally, it's my last point here. Lee, you can bring your team up. Talking about a life worth imitating. That kind of life is a life that's filled with hope and anticipation. Look at what Paul writes in verse 9. I'll go back to verse 9 and we'll move forward to verse 10. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception or how well we were received we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here's how I want to finish today. We are a people. We, the blood-bought, the redeemed. We that Paul was talking about when he started this letter, and he says grace and peace. That, that term grace and peace was used because the Gentiles understood grace, that they had been grafted into the, to the family of God. The Jews understood peace, shalom. Listen, we have this hope. We have this hope and anticipation that one, our lives are different because we have repented and we've turned away. That's what turned away means. We've repented from the idols in our lives and we have committed to serve the living God. And so we can wait in anticipation for the return of the King, the resurrected Christ. Third, because we have this hope in Jesus because we've placed our faith in him, because we've allowed him to turn our hearts, we're not going to be subjected to the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on this earth because followers of Christ are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And when he returns for us, we're going to go away with him and we're going to forever be with our Father. That's our hope. That's our anticipation. That's how we're supposed to live our lives as followers of Jesus. Let's pray. So many things to be thankful for that came out of this passage today, Lord. How we find our hope in you, how we can find our rest in you. How we can see you transforming our lives. Sometimes not in the moment, often when we have a chance to look back and reflect on just where you brought us from, we see your transforming power. Lord, I pray that, that each one of us will recognize what it means, the responsibility that we have 
as followers of Jesus to live a life where the reputation of the gospel is intact when people see us. A life that compels others to come crying, what must I do to have a piece of what you have? And so, Lord, we pray that you will continually make us more and more like you so that we will live full lives, lives worth imitating, lives that are an example for you. In Christ's name, amen.